Welcome back, listeners, to the Modern History HSC podcast. My name is Blake Hamilton, your host, and I'm joined here today by the biographer, historian, and professor, not to mention New York Times bestselling author, Professor Donald Miller. How are you going, Don? Pretty good. Pretty good, Blake. Thank you. It's great to be on. It's great to be on your show. Yeah, no, been thank on the you show for giving before, me the time. But I've uh, I've checked out the website, and I'm going to be a regular user. Well, I that sounds good. Yeah, I looked at the Russian site, you know, and uh, the Russian podcast. I thought it was excellent. Oh, fantastic. That's excellent. Well, I'm hoping that this one can be a fresh new addition to our roster. Well, we'll give it a shot. We'll give it a shot. <laughs> um, before we get into the nitty gritty, because we're going to be talking about some questions about the war in the Pacific, I always ask my guests when they come on, and it seems to be that you're no exception. Um, if I can just peel back the curtain, when I was trying to set up this interview, um, listener, I was asking the professor if he had any time to do this and he said he was crazy busy but he'd always make time for students so it seems to me that you're not just you know someone who sits around writing books that you're like you're a teacher at heart and we've just been talking about all these programs which would be super beneficial for the listener and we'll provide some information in the details below but Don, do you mind sharing just to start off with, what's your teacher origin story? How did you find yourself here being a professor of history and all that sort of stuff? It's a long, crooked road. <laughs> yep, right, yeah. I, I, was a confused, I was a confused college student. And like so many lucky people, I ran into a mentor in college. I went to a small Benedictine college called St. Vincent College in Pennsylvania and um, began to take history courses in my junior year. And got turned on by this fellow named Chuck Minoli. He was not an electrifying speaker or anything, but he was a terrific um, uh, guide to literature in the field, always there you know, for the students, um, willing to work with you, uh, taught you how to use the library, taught you the kinds of books you ought to be looking at, you know? And uh, he, was a, he was a big inspiration. As a result of that, I, I went to grad school I was still didn't have my mind made up. I, I went to two grad schools. I went to uh, University of Maryland and I went to Yale. Uh, my advisor at Maryland um, uh, passed away and I finished up at Yale. But, uh, uh, but anyway, I got my PhD and I was still unsure. I, 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 I thought I was gonna take a job with the Washington Post. I worked there for a little bit and had a good job actually, but decided I was more of a long distance runner than a sprinter. I, um, I liked writing short articles for a section of the post called the Outlook section. And you had a couple of weeks to do them and you got some nice feedback. So it was a nice posting for a young guy. Um, I was there during the Watergate years, which were very exciting. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, um, you know I started there with um, uh, Bernstein actually, the Woodward and Bernstein connection. Of course, Bob was there also. And um, finally gave up on law. I went to law school for one day. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the library and uh, after we got the syllabi and uh, I looked at the books and they looked pretty dreary. Yeah. And uh, everybody in my family was going to kill me. I had a scholarship. I had eight, the law boards and all that. Sorry about that. That's and right. um, the um, uh, decided that wasn't for me. Uh, started a reading program, got into it and off we go. And um, started uh, started teaching, and uh, I enjoyed teaching. And yeah. I thought it was I, I I really wanted to be first and foremost a writer. And uh, I, I I developed a love for writing 
when I started, when I was working on my dissertation, which was on American radicalism in the 1930s during the Great Depression. And I enjoyed the process, you know, and uh, didn't, I wasn't a big writer uh, as an undergraduate, but uh, I, uh, I, I liked it a lot. And, uh, and teaching afforded me the opportunity. Um, you know, I did my first book and I, I think I sold about 38 copies. <laughs> it, it, was, it wasn't a bestseller. It did okay. But, it sounds like my first book that I've read. Well, anyway, I knew I wasn't going to support myself. I, I, I can support myself now with my writing, but I couldn't then. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky to have um, the energy at the time. Uh, I'd been an athlete, had a lot of energy, and I worked out all the time. And, and you needed that kind of physical energy to get through grad school, I think, and to teach as well. Because, as you know, it's... It's intellectually challenging, but it mm. is physically exhausting. It really is. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 burnout is very high. I mean, we're suffering major burnout in the United States with our teachers. Um, yeah. My granddaughter just dropped out of teaching. Our teachers aren't paid enough. I'm sorry to hear that, Mike. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's calamitous. It's getting calamitous in the United States. There's intrusions in the classroom about you know what you can teach and what books you're being used are being used and things like that. It's not a good time for teaching, but it was great when I was at first started teaching. You know, in the in the eighties, and uh, th there was intellectual freedom. There was um, interest in history. It was pretty high, and uh, I had good students, and that's what keeps you going. Yeah, good students. And so what I've been doing ever since is balancing the two. I'm doing a lot more. Um, I retired, if you want to call it that, I backed away from active teaching um, because I have so many projects going right now, because I'm doing a lot of film work. Yeah, I've always been interested in film, and I've been doing films since the 90s, documentaries. And uh, I'm involved in some major film projects right now. I've done over 20 of them um, lifelong, but I, I, I really enjoy working for PBS I really enjoy working for HBO and now I'm working for Apple and Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and they're great people to work for. So I find that um, I use a lot of films in class and um, the um, it's fun working on a film because there's a compression to the writing uh, that is terrific. Uh, a script is a very thin skeletal thing. You know, you look mm. at it and there's there's not a lot of substance to it. Um, the director has to add something because it's a drama. Documentary is a lot fuller, but it's still, it still it fills in so much with you fill in so much with pictures. So I became, as a result, much more visually oriented than I had been before. Like when I do my World War II course now, um, and I've also been teaching grad students at the University of Pennsylvania. I use the same process there. If I do my World War II course, I tell the kids, um, and we always have a full class, and so it's a great group of people, and I tell them. You have to commit to, to, to two nights a week of, you know, usually a, a course of this nature meets for three or four hours, one night a week. But the first night we do all films. Yeah. Well, if we're doing the Battle of the Bulge, we'll do a motion picture and a documentary on the Bulge. And they take extensive notes on that. They have a day to think about it. And then the next day on Tuesday, it's all classroom experience. And that's based on not the film so much that they buttress it um they're supposed to get you excited about the, the, the subject yeah and, uh, to life. yeah and 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 i teach history as a narrative and my books are character driven mm. and my teaching is character driven i think 
the way to get people interested in history is not so much to introduce a lot of presentitis into it to show how everything relates to the present, because it really doesn't. Um, but we are who we've been, and as a people, um, you, you know, you are the product of all the decisions you've made up to this point, and so is your country. And um, so you can choose to ignore that um, and uh, just go on with your life. But if you want to know who you are, and which is an important thing to know if you're going to know where you want to go, um, history becomes important, I think. And Absolutely. Uh, so we spend a lot of time on, on in the classroom on the history of storytelling and history as, um, as inquiry, inquiry into yourself and inquiry into your, your, your whole experience. You know, I, I've taught local history. Uh, I'm... I come from a coal and steel family, steel workers and coal miners. Pennsylvania used to be, you know, of course, it's called the Keystone State, but one of the keystones of the Industrial Revolution. And the artifacts of the Industrial Revolution are all around us. And one of my first books was called The Kingdom of Coal. And it was really a, a search for my own origins, you know. And uh, that area of, of the, the so-called anthracite or hard coal country is only... 50 miles above where I live right now. So we do field trips up there and I set up a regional history program. Yeah. I got anthropologists, biologists, historians involved. I got nine faculty involved. We got a nice grant from National Endowment. I got my people at the University of Pennsylvania to help out. And it was a roaring success. And we, we do field trips to all kinds of places in the region. But you, you wouldn't think students would be interested how, how much we... Are they interested in going into a, an inactive coal mine <laughs> and steel mill and things like that? And but it, it works. Like you said, so, it's their um, roots. Yeah, it's their roots, and I was doing my own roots in a way too. And uh, just like my dissertation, I was floundering and trying to discover who I was politically. Uh, neither party, although I'm a registered Democrat. Um, oh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm sometimes my views aren't congruent with the party stance on a lot of issues. I think the Democrats, for example, have largely ignored the working class, the white working class, to their detriment. And um, but um, the I, I, I'm starting to ramble. Now. I'm not talking about much about history, but I, I guess it is history. I mean, it, it's um, I. I wanted to find who I was, and, you know, by exploring the non-Marxian radicals of the 1930s, those who were to the left of the New Deal, but weren't communist or so, you know, or Marxian socialist. And there were groups like that. And yeah. reading about that, I was able to develop a sense of who, where I wanted to go politically. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I assiduously ignore getting, avoid getting into politics in the classroom. I don't even do a lot of current events. I mean, I think the kids can see the relevance of what we're talking about yeah. um, and um, and the importance to their own lives of what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and the key, as I found, going back to my mentor, Charlie Manoli again, is there are two things that make a course, the students and the books. Yeah. So picking good books is a big part of what I do. I really work hard to stay up on things and to use readable material. I use a lot of fiction. Uh, in my course in the 1920s and 30s, my goodness, I use nine novels, you know, and uh, 
So we read Dos Passos and Hemingway and Richard Wright and you name it. And, uh, and, and that ignites interest. And yeah. In addition to other kinds of textual material and things like that, the kids see the syllabus and they immediately want to drop when they see the sides of the reading list. But we, we get through it. We get yeah. through it. Yeah. And um, uh, might I just say that when you've been talking about the selection of the books that you've been choosing and the types and like the real focus on the narrative, if we were going to pivot into the into the Pacific and this book in particular here, the story of World War II, one of the one one of the examples that I might bring up to the listener where I think that shines out really clearly, where it could have just been, you know, facts, dates, and statistics, which is not going to get um is not going to get every single student, is the chapter on the rising sun. And they're talking about uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And you've got all these different perspectives coming into it in the chapter. And it's all these little stories that you've got the story of the Japanese um, pilot. And then you've got the story of the Japanese American teenager who's living on the island in Hawaii. And he knows exactly what it means once the bombing begins. And then you've got the sailors on the ships and oh my god that story where the sailors are trapped in when the when the ship turns over in the, yeah, harbor, the Oklahoma, in it, Oklahoma. It, it capsized and, and they were caught you know at the bottom of Pearl Harbor uh, upside down and uh, it, you know I tried to through a long series of interviews I, I interviewed that guy geez almost 30 hours that was just such a story you know such a story yeah, but, I read it all. Yeah, the that's time. what I try to. That's that, that's that's kind of what I try to do. You know, um, bring bring it home through uh, bring it home through characters. I'm always excited when I find a new character. I mm. find uh, I've written about the Civil War. I've written about cities, Chicago, New York, all kinds of stuff. But uh, it's always the personalities that bring it alive for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and I always keep a little. I can see it right now, um, a little index card over my desk. Uh, will the reader turn the next page? You know, I mean, you, you got to keep the story moving. And um, people yeah. see themselves through these people, I think. Yeah. yeah. Interesting characters. Well, you've got that same theme going through, like, I think a lot of your history books. And I think it really does keep the reader going because rather than just going, okay, we're going through a timeline here, it's like I'm invested in what's going to happen to person A. Or like yeah. what's going to happen like next that you've made. Yeah, it, it is nonfiction, but it feels like you're in someone's created story, almost like it's, well, it's stranger that, than fiction. That, that, that's, that, that's what I try very hard to do. And I, I learned a lesson a long time ago from a, a minor playwright who made an observation to me one time that um, um, it, it's about the relevance of, uh, of, of the past. And um, he kept pointing out to me how sometimes um, history doesn't give you so much perspective. Um, it, it, if you look at history in the way it's sometimes ordinarily taught, there's a certain kind of inevitability to it, especially mm. if they know the outcome. Yeah. Okay. And then if you got the outcome firmly in mind, then all the decisions that you're going to make about what material to use will lead you to that outcome. And sometimes it's good to not yourself, 
know that much about the story. I move around a lot. Um, like I'm starting a book about the Civil War and I did one on the Battle of Vicksburg, key battle, surrender occurred the same day as Gettysburg, turning point in the war and everything like that. And now I'm taking, and I focus on Ulysses Grant, the Union General, and I'm taking the story of Grant and Lincoln, who he kind of partners with after this, when he gets elevated to command of all US armies down to the end of the war. And I was gonna start the story when Lincoln goes to, when Lincoln's in Washington and Lincoln he calls in Grant and swears him in as commander in chief of all US armies. And then he goes after Robert E. Lee. Hmm. And uh, for the next, you know, um, next year in a couple of months. But I stumbled upon a battle called Chattanooga. Now, I had never taught Chattanooga before. And um, the um, it's a hugely interesting and hugely important thing. And Grant basically saved a, a Union army that was besieged there and starving. And if they had lost, they'd have lost the army. And all the benefits that accrued to the Union cause from winning at Gettysburg and Vicksburg would have been for naught. And, uh, and it was a great story of the relationship between Grant and Lincoln. So I called my publisher when I was a couple weeks ago and I said, you know, I've been working on this for seven months and I haven't gotten to the swearing in of Grant was supposed to be the first <laughs> sentence of the book. And I have four chapters on Chattanooga. And, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's a story that really reveals the two characters tremendously because there was a lot of conflict between Grant and Lincoln. And um, I try to tell the story as if I don't know who's going to win and what's going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. the secret there is um, you try to get behind the eyes, if you can, of the participants and get them at the point where they have to make a decision, not knowing what the outcome is going to be of that decision, where everything is contingent. We don't know. You and I don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes, and neither did they. So I try to implant myself in the story like that, that these people really don't know what's coming. Yeah. And so there's no uh, determinism or inevitability built into the story. The South, I think, could have won the Civil War. And uh, I don't know if Japan and Germany could have won World War II, but if the Germans had developed the atomic bomb, it certainly would have been a different story. Yeah. Um, they weren't as close as we thought they were or feared they were. But it's, it certainly would have prolonged the war immensely uh, if they'd won, uh, if they hadn't gotten beaten so badly uh, in Russia early in the war um, or we hadn't gotten involved. Um, so that's what you try to do. So sometimes, in other words, perspective, which is what history is supposed to give you, you know, yeah. sometimes that, that distorts because it can lead to the sense of everything you're dealing with had to have happened that way. Well, yeah, it, it was inevitable. Like we got the hindsight yeah. glasses. Yeah, on. and and then you know, you know, there's. It's like one of my students said, "How do we challenge you? You know all the answers. You know you've read more <laughs> than we have." And yeah. and and that's the only advantage I have. It's not that I'm smarter than they are, but and 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 sometimes when we teach and I teach this way, it opens things up a lot more for the students. Because we do deal with the idea, we stop and say, okay, um, we're at um, just before D-Day in World War II, and we're getting hammered in the air war, and we haven't, we don't have boots on the ground, and uh, you know, in Germany, anywhere close to Germany, we haven't invaded yet. Um, we're on Italy, but we're getting, you know, we're not making much progress there. 
and uh, and and the British are getting bombed, and it, it, it doesn't. There are points it doesn't look good. So you know, if you're living at that time, what are you thinking? Let's yeah, take a look at some newspapers and things. Let's take a look at some accounts and letters and diaries and things like that. Yeah. Like Dan, in a way, the story you mentioned, uh, Dan became a Japanese teenager, became a uh, an American soldier. So, you know, won the Medal of Honor, and later went on to become and uh, a United States Senator, a very distinguished United States Senator, one of the founders of our World War II Museum. But when he looked up in the sky on Pearl Harbor Day and saw the rising sun, you know, the picture, you know, you know, the, the emblem on the plane of Japanese planes, he thought, "My whole world is over." Yeah, we, we've overcome a lot of prejudice on this island that we experienced initially especially his father and now this and we've got to live here i mean his whole world uh it's not just he's being attacked by a foreign far uh, party it's it, it's it's his own people that's uh, at war with the united states so pearl you know is immensely significant to him just as it is a, that guy in, in the oklahoma because he doesn't know if he's going to live or die yeah, from minute to minute. Yeah, so that's the fun of history. I think it, 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 if it keeps you engaged as a writer and you excited about your material, it'll make your writing better, and um, and maybe people read some books and um, buy another, and um, I can go to the beach in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I would like to ask about a particular like when we were talking about like these turning points, and you're not knowing what's going to happen i'd like to ask you about a particular question that the students get in our exams over here for this particular topic which is evaluating the importance of the turning point for the united states in the well the allies in the pacific so you've had the japanese first six months of glory their blitz um and then all the reasons behind why the Americans and the allies aren't ready. You know, they're underestimating the Japanese and they're, they're not very well coordinated. And we get to these three events, the Coral Sea, the Battle of Midway and Guadalcanal. And the kids get given an option to write these different essays and asking which one is the most important. And I wanted to put the question to you as gone in and looked at all the accounts and probably thought about it a bit. Could you mm -hmm. rank them? Do you think that the best way that a student should write about it is saying that actually there isn't one that's more important than the other. Like what's your insight into a question like that? So, yeah, I ask that question occasionally and I certainly ask it all the time in class. So you're talking about Coral Sea, Guadalcanal and Midway. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say I'd rank of equal value uh, Midway and uh, was first the idea of Japanese naval superiority and prevents the Japanese from retaking, uh, from taking, uh, pro there was a plan to not only bomb Pearl Harbor, but to take Pearl Harbor, not in an initial invasion, but in a follow-up invasion. Well, that's off the boards now. And um, we um, really crack into the Japanese carrier force tremendously. And we lure them, we kind of lured them into this battle, and uh, and and from this point on, 
we are able to build larger and larger carriers, supercarriers. And the Pacific is really a carrier war. It's uh, Chester Nimitz is running it largely in the Central Pacific and Eisenhower is coming up the other way. And he's working with the Marines and the Army. Now, Guadalcanal is really important because Guadalcanal stops Japanese expansion. So the way to see the Pacific, I think, is as a war of reconquest in a very short period of time from Pearl Harbor into the summer uh, yes. up till the Japanese, you know, um, until we land on Guadalcanal. Uh, they're winning everywhere. I mean, there's symbolic victories and there's a major victory that has long-term ripples like Midway and, and, and Coral Sea, another one. But really, um, the Pacific War um, starts to turn when we start to engage the Japanese army uh, and lose a lot. And then um, through resupplying Guadalcanal uh, by gaining the superiority of the, uh, of the straits that the Japanese use in the Pacific to run in supplies. Um, that's the first and only time the Japanese evacuated an island, that they took their troops off it. Every other campaign is a fight to the death and there are no surrenders. It's kill every Japanese on the island from the Allied perspective and the Australian perspective. And uh, so Guadalcanal is really important in, in that respect. It's, a, it's an important moral victory. The fact that we're making films on Guadalcanal right at the time, and it's a very good one, starring William Bendix, uh, called Guadalcanal Diary, which is written by a reporter named Richard Trugaskis, who came back after six weeks on the island and wrote a story in Life magazine to the point that we're losing on Guadalcanal and we could lose this whole thing. And William Bendix, you know, most of these World War II Hollywood films are propaganda films and they don't concern themselves with the grimness necessarily and the uh, despondency sometimes of the, uh, of the allied uh, planners and soldiers. But William Bendix is in a foxhole in Guadalcanal and he says, we could lose. We could yeah. lose here. Yeah. And the fact that we didn't um, and wouldn't again um, is really hugely important. Although if I were looking at the whole war yeah. in the Pacific, I would say Saipan is the big turning point. In fact, really? I, think, I think the whole wheel of history turns in June of 44. When you look at it like this, the Allies land on, on the beaches of Normandy. Okay, it's, it's a successful invasion. Okay, Canadians, Brits, American, Poles, etc. Saipan is a huge victory. Okay, um, because it puts us within bomber range of Imperial Japan, and we oh. have the bomber, the B twenty nine, that can reach Japan. We've been flying it out of China ineffectively. The distance was it used we used too much gas getting fuel in over the, um, you know, uh, uh, we're running in fuel from India, you know, over the Himalayas. And That's right, because they couldn't go through Burma. Yeah, they couldn't go through Burma, and they're digging airfields with, without mechanica mechanicalized equipment with Chinese hand labor. And so it's not working out, and Curtis LeMay, who's running the operation, said it's not doing it. And we start to put the Japanese on notice that they're within striking range 
of these gigantic bombers, which are going to cause immense devastation. Is that when the firebombing begins? Yes, like only because bombing? only because LeMay was unsuccessful at conventional bombing. Yeah, and because of the um, the air currents and um, the um, uh, he's running daylight strategic bombing a lot like they ran it in Europe, fly in about twenty five thousand feet and try to hit some industries using the Norden bomb site. Yeah, which you know, et cetera. It's kind of an oxymoron. It, it, you know, a strategic bombing. We never really had pinpoint bombing in World War II. I mean, that's a fallacy. But we got close a lot of the times. But in Japan, it, 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 LeMay said, forget all of this. Strip the planes down. Take the gunners off the plane. Fly in at 5,000 feet. The crews went crazy. Why? No protection, no gunners, no fighter escorts. And we're going to drop um, napalm. Mm. And we're going to burn the Japanese cities of paper, as LeMay called them. Yeah, and um, as horrific as that bombing is, it works, and because it, you know, it, 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 the saturation aspect of it does knock out a lot of Japanese industries, which are small industries scattered over Tokyo and Nagasaki and places like that. But the real effect is on the high command; they can't, uh, they can't stop it. And uh, LeMay would drop these leaflets and say, "You're next, the next city." And he'd ask for an evacuation. And then he'd say, in three days, we're going to hit it. And guess what? You can't, your leaders can't stop it. Yeah. And we kind of did the same thing, the Allies in, in Europe. Now, bombing is a very blunt instrument. And while it's going on, of course, we're holding, gaining and holding territory. Um, the Australians and the Americans in um, New Guinea, for example, moving slowly up in Bougainville and the, on the islands and things like that. So we're making progress there while concomitantly this is going on. So it's not that air power wins World War II. World War II, it, it, it's like ne Neptune's um, fork. It three-pronged air, ground, and naval. And the combination thereof was devastating. Yeah. Absolutely devastating. Even the Russians didn't have that. Uh, they had the overwhelmingly powerful land army and the damn good air force, but not much of a navy. No. But the Allies had all three uh, and, uh, and were good at it. And even though we're running two separate campaigns in the Pacific, that really threw the Japanese off balance um, because it was hard for them to defend north of Darwin and protect Australia from saturation bombing from Japanese bases close by, yeah, and which was a great fear at the beginning of the war because that's really where, you know, you, the war starts in the Pacific with Australia. Australia is the England of the Pacific. That's where we're going to land the invasion troops, land the air force, et cetera, et cetera, and that's where the supplies are going to go into, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So the merchant marine becomes very important, and when there's strikes in Australia, that's that that creates some real problems. And those longshoremen and things like that, but that's another story. But yeah, uh, to, to go one step further on the Saipan thing, we also were able to get closer to the Philippine Sea and put submarine a submarine blockade into effect. So the Japanese originally, you know, World War II in the Pacific is all about a, a resource grab. The Japanese Army and Navy are moving south steadily through Vietnam, and they're jumping on places like Java, 
and things like that. And um, and Indonesia as it was known then. And for oil, tin, et cetera, and even rice, there's no shortage of rice. Yeah. And all this stuff had to be brought back on merchant ships. And we murdered, the Allies did those merchant ships. Um, our submarine fleet was extraordinarily effective. And um, the Japanese didn't pay a lot of attention to defense against the submarine. So we're able to build this resource blockade. And more than the bombing, I think, that it had a strangulating effect on the Japanese war industries and in the whole economy. Yeah, uh, they, they aren't getting metal. Uh, we were able eventually to cut them off from Manchuria where they got their iron. Um, they don't have any oil. That's where they get all their oil down there. They used to get it from the United States. I mean, so in a lot of ways, as I point out at the beginning of, of the chapters in the book you mentioned, it's, 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 it begins as an oil war um, and the world's first oil war. Um, but Saipan is important in, in, in that respect, too. And then the Japanese go out and challenge us on the allies on Saipan. And that leads to the Battle of the Philippine Sea, where we massacre their air force which was never again as significant as significant or consequential a force as it had been before. Yeah. And so you go into June and then you swing over to Europe and we get lodgment in France with a D-Day invasion, mm. et cetera. And you swing to the east to Russia and they launch at the same time Operation Bagration, which is the largest land invasion in world history. That's when they begin their drive toward Germany. They have just won the Battle of Stalingrad and blunted. Stalingrad's a lot like Guadalcanal. It stops German expansion. Yeah. Now the, the Russians go on the offensive. And, uh, and that starts with Bagration. Um, other significant things happen, like the GI Bill and things. We make big advances in India at the same time. Um, the, um, so it's, this is when this thing really turns, I think. Yeah, the, the war. Yeah, I think so. Um, the, the Japanese commander on um, Iwo Jima, of course, the Allies hadn't hit Oji, Iwo Jima yet, but he writes a letter home. He's digging caves and expecting an, an invasion eventually. And he tells his family, get out of Tokyo. They got a plane here that can reach Tokyo. And it carries a devastating, really large 10,000 pound bomb load. And um, Kojo is displaced in June after losing Saipan. Um, that throws a kink in the Japanese war machine. Uh, creates doubt. The Japanese are running pretty much on, on victory disease. You know, um, uh, and it's kind of like some of the more astute commanders pointed out we, with Pearl Harbor, we'll, we'll knock them back for about a year. But we better be ready for a, a major counteroffensive, and uh, until then we can run wild. But um, and this is about forty-three two is when the industrial machine called the United States gets fully organized for war on a war footing, where we stop making cars. Henry Ford stops making cars. General Motors, Chrysler, and we're making only military vehicles, and um, we're creating things like aluminum and, and penicillin, and, and and science gets involved in the war. Uh, work starts on the Manhattan Project. Yeah, so it's a big month. It's a big month in the war. Wow, and, I'm definitely going to have to write that one down. 
because when you're like going through the the standard textbooks, they're you know they're really focusing on midway. They're really focusing on they do and all that sort of stuff. But you've laid out a really interesting case that is a larger picture: June, Saipan, you know that extra prong of of um, Neptune's trident coming into into play, and the Japanese being overwhelmed, and the submarines coming into play. That this is really the strangulation. But I will just say that with Saipan, and that's also a chapter in the book that sticks with me, I think that's the same point where the GIs that are there and they're mopping up in Saipan, they have the incident with the, I think it's like 4,000 civilians or so that are on the island. They've been told that the GIs are going to torture them and they're going to rape them and they're going to they're going to kill them and, and they the GIs can't reason with them and they see no. how bad it's going to be and people are throwing themselves off cliffs and they're drowning themselves in the seas and whole families are committing. There, there's a lot of despair in the letters of the guys because they just didn't think they were going to come home from the Pacific. Yeah. They, they saw how hard it was going to be the closer they got to Japan. Hmm. I mean, eventually at Okinawa, they see it in, in, you know, in, in full force, but they start to see it in Saipan that this is a nation and the Japanese announced that, that um, we all are soldiers in this battle. And uh, we, have to, we have to expect an invasion. We're seeing the enhanced bombing. And um, we have to prepare women, children, everyone for the inevitable. And, um, and it's going to be grim. And um, when you see a, an enemy who you're pleading with, with Japanese interpreters not to commit suicide. Um, and how's it going to be with the Japanese armed forces defending the home country? Yeah. Uh, because no one knew about the atomic bomb. Again, that's out of the picture. You have to start, I mean, teach World War II and say, forget about the bomb. Yeah. Because you can't understand any of the decisions. It's like when word about the bomb was delivered to um, the commander's uh, Nimitz in the Pacific um, by uh, an Air Force colonel uh, who took it across, uh, stuck it in his underwear, and they got him across in a battleship to Iwo, to, just off Iwo Jima. And uh, Nimitz looked at it and said, well, why the hell don't we use it now? And they said, the bomb. And I said, well, it's not ready. It's not ready. He said, man, if it were, these two invasions back to back, Iwo Jima and Okinawa, are going to be calamitous. About 60% of the Marines that died in the Pacific died in these two battles. So, um, yeah, we're still not sure. We're stuck to win. But then what the, you have to think again of how the people and the governments are thinking. Yeah. The Australians raised this point too. Um, how are we going to get an organized surrender from a people like this? Yeah, who will not surrender, like, under yeah, the current I mean, situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think William Tecumseh Sherman, the American Civil War general, had it right that wars don't wind down. They speed up at the end. When people are fighting for national survival, like mm. Ukrainians are today, um, they fight her with, with almost suicidal determination. And, and that's what we're going to confront with the dead-enders when, when we go into Germany. That's what we're going to try to do. Same thing, same thing's going to happen with the Japanese. It's going to be awful. And we saw that on Okinawa, where there were also cliff jumpers and things like that. And uh, 
You know, there were 100,000 Okinawans, who, civilians who were killed in that thing. And the American casualties are very, very high, Army and Marine. But um, yeah, finishing off, is the Japanese government going to surrender? What are they going to do with our prisoners? Most of the prisoners are British and Australian. Mm. Um, so that's why it pops up there. And they're meeting with our allied commanders and they're saying, what about our guys? Um, if Saipan is a prelude, um, they're going to start killing them. Yeah, it's just going to be a massacre. It's going to be a massacre. And it was in a lot of ways in, in places, you know, and, and, you know and, and it was stopped. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the um, yeah, you think of how many you, you figure um, Singapore and just think of Hong Kong, those two places are lost to us, the populations. And when the Australians and the British try to save those two places, um, the casualties are are high, but especially among prisoners. Yeah. When they're forced to surrender and like yeah 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 like, yeah well, in the point you know, of like really Chinese, it really Blake it hit me between the eyes when I was researching my book on the air war in Europe, and I go to these old bases, our bomber bases in England, and talk to some old characters there, who who were eight, nine, ten years old at the time of the war, and um, and they try to explain to me how their fathers felt about things, and uh, they didn't particularly like the Americans because they said. They were all after our daughters. <laughs> and the one guy said, our, our young guys were all in Japanese prison camps. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons, you know, and then people start to debate whether what we should do with Hirohito and surrender. It's not just the atomic bomb. It's, do we hang Hirohito? Yeah. What happens if you kill like and that also comes up in the book a little bit more as well like when they and we're skipping a little bit ahead but when Hirohito makes that declaration about the surrender of Japan it's it's like the first time that many people have even heard his voice like he's a god to them he's a god he's like a what god. do you do with a god <laughs> like what do you do with a god people god. That, people who are sworn to die for that god yeah, yeah. <laughs> If you and there was a coup. They they try to the, the you know the military junta tried to uh, intercept the um, the transcript uh, the um, the recording of the uh, of the emperor's speech. Um, there was there was a shootout. Uh, there were suicides. Um, there was a junta that tried to take the military junta that tried to take over the country, um, and make the emperor a prisoner, um, and prolong the war. So we don't know. We don't know what's what's going on, you know. Yeah. Um, the um, I remember I was talking to Paul Tibbetts, who flew. I knew Paul pretty well. He flew the Enola Gay, uh, dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And when they were going up to the Empire from Tinian mm. to drop that bomb, he said we spotted um, B-29s and some B-17s coming back from Japan, and the crew said to me, what the hell are they doing? We're going to finish this off. He said, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> is it just the impression? Do you, and this is going to get into another important question, um, and maybe, again, just 
forgetting about the fact, like you've said, tell the story, not knowing what the effect that the atomic bombs are going to have. Do you think that the Allies know at the time that the dropping of two atomic bombs are going to have that wild card, almost no. crushing effect? And that's probably why that's they're still it, bombing. It, it, you're it's right, Blake. Like, like, you're, you're, what you're saying is absolutely right in one respect. We only had two. There was one just about ready to be developed. But we wanted to drop them close to one another because we wanted to convince the Japanese that, that we had a lot more. Yes. And yeah. it was this it was this one two punch, you know, uh, kind of Ali against Liston, you know, boom, boom, and that's it. And that'll drive them to their senses. But when that doesn't occur right away, there's, there's, there's a bit of time between the dropping of the first bomb and the actual surrender, you know, it's a good part of August. And uh, so we're not quite sure what's going on. And the second bomb did make an impact. The fear of the Russian invasion made an impact. Um, but um, the, um, the decision was already made. I mean, Truman, all he had to do was say no. Uh, he didn't have to say yes it, 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 when he took over. He was told, we're going to drop the bomb unless you stop it. And so there's a sense of inevitability to the whole thing. But whether it's going to work or not, or how, to get to your first point, how calamitous is it going to be? How bad is the radiation going to be? That's something even the scientists, they knew it was bad juju, but they didn't, they had no idea of how bad this was going to be. I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, a guy named Sweeney who uh, a, a captain at the time flew the the second raid, the Nagasaki raid. And I interviewed Sweeney and the whole crew of that plane. And uh, after the second bombing, they got an inkling that they, they got in, in their crawl, they wanted to go up and see what, you know, what the effect was. They flew, they took a B-17 and they flew up to Nagasaki and they had um, tea, and sandwiches in a Nagasaki restaurant. <laughs> it's just <laughs> wild. What's going on. Yeah, I just want to check it out, you know? <laughs> no idea. No yeah. idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I interviewed a guy from Chicago, and uh, Studs Turkle told me about this story. And I interviewed this guy, I think I might have it in the book. And he says, uh, he said to me, I'll tell you a funny story. He said, we were. My buddy and I were Marines. They're both from Chicago. They were both living at, the, you know, uh, before I wrote the book. So I was able to have extensive talks with him. And uh, they said, um, when we were on Saipan, we heard through the Tanoi system, the loudspeaker system, a message that went something like this. The Allies have dropped one bomb on one city in Japan. And it, 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 it has more force then maybe all the bombs dropped up to this point in World War II. And not a soul will be able to go into that city for years. Uh, it wasn't true, but that's what they said. And they said, and when the second one was bombed, they said the same thing. And then after Nagasaki, their commanding officer said, hey, guys, we're leaving Saipan. They said, well, where, where are we going? They said, well, we're going to Nagasaki on guard duty. They said, well, we heard on you. Forget what you heard. <laughs> that's bullshit. Yeah. We're going up there. <laughs> yeah. And they were right in that Catholic section by the Catholic Church. And there's a ridge. Nagasaki separated by a ridge. 
And the, it had an effect. We dropped it on the industrial section, which is largely a Catholic area, largest Catholic church in, in the East. And the Catholics suffered an awful lot of prejudice. To a lot of the Japanese, <laughs> terrible to say this is not a bad thing that he killed off these people. And uh, that's why there wasn't that much distress about the American airmen. But it knocked the hell out of the church. So they went in there, these two guys, and they took these two altarpieces, angels, mm. about O size, three feet high. Somehow they mailed them back to the States, and both of them used them as porch furniture, you know, to decorate the porch because they were yeah. kind of pretty. And these guys like to go out on the beach and um, with their magnetic things, you know, and pick up stuff on the beach, a lost watch, a ring and things like that, you know. And um, the um, so the one guy was going to pick up his friend in the morning and he had he had turned on what's that machine called the um, it's like a metal detector. Like a metal detector. So yeah. he turns, he has his metal detector turned on accidentally when he goes for his buddy. And the detector goes bonkers when he goes on the porch. Yeah. <laughs> Just like residual <laughs> radiation <laughs> all over his porch. This is radioactive. Yeah. <laughs> so they called the Atomic Energy Commission yeah. and they came in and said, You got to get this out of here. We'll take it away from you. Yeah. And they shipped it back to Japan and they put it in a museum in Hiroshima uh, behind all sorts of protections. But they had no idea. Yeah. This this sort of thing. And until John Hersey writes his very famous book, I mean, about the tremendous numbers of people, many more die of radiation poisoning than die of the blast. Um, God knows how many people died in those two bombings. But um, that's when we began to see that this is a fire you can't put out. Mm. And um, the, um, and you'd think, we knew radiation was dangerous, but not quite that dangerous. Yeah, yeah. that it was going to last that's through like the generations. Yes, yes, and yeah, yeah, you couldn't even if you, you had to bury it. You just, you just how do you dispose of this sort of thing? And when people start to get word of that, there is a reaction in the states. I did an article for you on it in grad school. Of, you know, a, a group of very courageous uh, people and mostly scientists who started to speak out against. Or, or for disarmament and um, to try to make this thing illegal internationally, uh, violation of the rules of war. And um, when people saw, especially, you know, in, when was it 48 when the Russians get a bomb? And then, of course, when you get the H bomb in the early 50s, the bomb hysteria all across the country. The, uh, yeah, there's it's, it's so many of these side effects. That, that are not predicted. Should, 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 you know, what the kids like to debate, of course, is should the bomb have been dropped and things like that. Well, that, yeah, that was the big question I was going to ask. Do you, if you remove that, yeah, moral effect, do you think actually dropping the atomic bombs in the end saved more lives, considering yeah, all I the radiation I, and I, everything? I, I, I do. And I think one of the ways to, I've had a lot of conversations with Richard Frank. Uh, about this, and, and he, he's the best historian, I think, on the bombing, and uh, with his book, uh, Inferno, and, um, and he, he gets the numbers right, he, you know, he's into the records, and what I saw, too, in my own research is, let's take the atomic bomb off the table for a second, let's say we don't have it. Yeah. The problem with the debate on the bomb is that, um, 
nobody does that. Um, it's to the debaters who are largely diplomatic historians, not military historians. And um, to the debaters, it's like, oh, the war was going to kind of stop or stall for a second while we've discussed this. Well, <laughs> everything was moving forward mm. at warp speed. Thing. And so what is happening if we take the bomb off? What would have happened to Japan had the bombs not been dropped? Well, the Japanese have looked into this. Uh, their historians, um, Hezekiah and people like they, they they're 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 on this. And what they're saying is um, it probably saved a lot of lives because what would have happened without the bomb? Well, we were moving across to the Pacific, um, the um, bomber command the British bomb force, okay? Now, they didn't have a B-29, but they had a big, big, powerful plane called the Lancaster, which had tremendous range and a lot of striking power. It could carry a 9,000-pound blockbuster bomb. So we got the American 8th Air Force has done its work in England, and they're coming over under mm -hmm. Jimmy Doolittle, and they're already arriving in Okinawa. We're running, and our fighter force, um, which is doing tremendous damage to strafing of Japanese cities, um, just hitting everything, is working in conjunction with the Navy on that Operation Strangulation I mentioned. Yes, so we're, we're dropping, we're mining the Japanese harbors, so they can't bring anything in, okay? Food, iron ore, all the essentials, even water. And, um, Along with that, we have established an aircraft carrier cordon around all of the main islands. So fighter planes are launched every day against Japanese cities. Yeah. And fighter planes are launched every day from Okinawa and Iwo Jima and places like that. And they're hitting smaller targets every day. Okay. So there's a rice shortage in Japan. Estimates are probably famine to the point of about killing mm, 600 to 700,000 people that first winter would yeah. have died of starvation and disease because they don't have enough medicine. Um, it would have been, and we would have invaded. Yeah, along with the Russians as well. And that's really, that's what they really feared, the Russians. Yeah. Because the Russian army, people forget, just wiped up the Japanese army in Manchuria in the last month of the war that's too much of the war just wiped them out yeah and they tore through there and they're ready uh, as long as they can get lift is what the, as the navy calls it enough they had the problems that we had with d-day initially where we had to postpone it because of not enough landing craft but when they get enough landing craft they're going on there and we're going to have like in korea two two japans a communist northern japan and a democratic southern japan um so what am I saying? Now you can make your decision, but you have to take this into account because it wasn't that maybe this would happen. It was it was going to happen. Yeah. All this all this that I've mentioned was in in the cards. So um, then you can make a, a, an informed decision, but you have to have the facts before you can make it informed. So we're not talking about a hypothetical situation. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, that that it, when I started to see it like that, like 
I make the point, I've changed my mind about, I changed my mind about Dresden. Uh, I was against the bombing of Dresden in the story of World War II. I made the point that Eisenhower made that maybe we shouldn't have had a second bomb in the story of World War II. I changed my mind about that. The more I got into it, it wasn't that I was becoming more militantly, uh, you know, um, conservative on, on this issue, but it, it, it just, uh, I began to see that um, there weren't a lot of choices. No, and they thought it was like the planners at the time, as we've been saying up to this point, they're like, they're getting ready after seeing Iwo Jima and Okinawa that, and like you've laid it out, it's like Japan's going to be invaded. It's, we're going to move all our bombers. We're going to, we're going to have to strangle them economically. There's going to be famine. There's going to be disease. And if like, it's the homeland, like we're going to have to like burn out every single part of this island that's like 60, 70% mountainous as well it's just like a giant yeah, fortification and hard place maybe, to take. yeah absolutely and then when the bombs are dropped perhaps maybe the calculation at the time is it's like this might just be a more effective way of bombing you know it's one plane for the same payoff as all the fire bombing that we're already doing already but yeah. then it has this final, like like you said, this one-two punch, and it's like, oh, my God, how many bombs do the Americans have if they can use two like this? And then, yeah. Yeah, we, would, we probably would have had about nine of them by Christmas. Now, when they brought Curtis LeMay in, Curtis LeMay was brought over for a, uh, a briefing in June before the bombs are dropped in August, Fort Fox. And um, he fell asleep during the briefing. With Stimson and all these other people in the room, <laughs> and, and you know they nudged him awake, and he said, "Well, my point is, is this: um, we don't need the bomb. I have just destroyed sixty-one Japanese cities. You give me more bombs, I'll kill sixty-one more." Yeah, that they already had their giant. There are no like, air their, defenses their left. There's no air defenses left. Mm. It's. We're not going to lose any planes. It, we're going to lose them because of mechanical failure, but we're not going to lose them to Japanese zeros. Just, you know, and, and that's why he stopped at 61. He ran out of bombs and um, or he'd hit 120 suits. Yeah, if he could. If he could, yeah. yeah. And as he said, I would have been tried as a war criminal, but this was a war for national survival, in my opinion. So it's... Um, it's it's hard to make easy moral decisions when you know all the facts. Yeah, you know? makes you really it, it, appreciate it, the it, people it, at the time what they like yeah, going through. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I taught a course, a short course, in Japan in Hiroshima on the bomb. Well, <laughs> I was nervous, and um, what kind of reaction you're going to get? Yeah, this was interesting. The kids that were. Um, kids well 18 is 23 um the ones that were what we call liberals or progressives who are against the empire and all that other stuff and believed in a, a democratic japan and all that they were very much for the bomb because in their minds it was the only thing that would have destroyed a military tradition that was over a thousand years old yeah um and the a samurai. yeah the shogunate mm. and, uh, and 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 i never thought of it that way the militants, the conservative reactionaries, the ones that were the nationalists, um, the former um, Tojo supporters, um, they kept arguing to me that 
they were the ones that kept bringing up all the arguments about, okay, yeah, uh, you guys are just paying us back for Pearl Harbor. This was unnecessary to win the war. You know, that was their argument. And it was, it was overbombing and, uh, and immoral. And, uh, and the Germans, the German right today and the anti, and, and then the pro Hitler groups in Germany feel the same way. You go to the rallies in Dresden and that's how it splits. The progressives are for the bombing and the neo-Nazis are against it. And because it destroyed the regime. Yeah, yeah, it was just too much. It was the final straw. It, 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 exactly, exactly. And we went into a different direction. And uh, now, so the Japanese still fight these battles in museum culture and in the curriculum. I um, assign my students a, uh, an exercise where they, they can do it on the internet, where they just search down the last couple of years of debates, the Japanese debate every year what textbooks to use, World War II. Yeah. And they're big, big debates. And there have been shootings and electors and people who make these decisions have been shot. Wow. And like they've been so little like shooting and gun violence in Japan. And the fact that so some little. of it happens, yeah, and some of it happens over textbook selection. Wow. Talk, talk oh, well, yeah. And, and, and another group I have, um, I have them going into how the Chinese and the Japanese argue about the um, comfort women and uh, Nanjing and things like that. And every time there's a dispute, they lay that on the Japanese. Yeah. You're barbarians, you know, and look what you did here. And, um, and you invaded us. And this was a long war that killed a lot of Chinese you know, over 15 million. Well, so it's in diplomacy all the time. Um, when a Japanese minister who's connected in some way with the old regime comes, or a prime minister gets elected, is, uh, is there a trail there that takes you back to some of these maniacs, you know, that were running medical experiments and things like that. So this is always in the news. It, it really it enlivens the class. The kids bring in stuff they had never thought about, you know? Yeah. And what a lot of the kids found that if you were in a government-supported school, there was less, less likely that you were going to get the truth about the war. If you went to a Catholic or a private school where there was no government or little government support, you pretty much got the story the way it was. And nobody messes with the universities basically now. Um, the Japanese scholars, we have them all the time coming to the museum. They're writing really good stuff about the war. And uh, they're, they're not under this, these kinds of restraints that high school teachers are under. But it's like in America, that's where the big battles are fought in the high schools. Yeah, the battle for ideas and just like who's yeah, going to it's the school boards. It's the school boards. And it when we were living in England, when I was teaching in Oxford, I saw that with my daughter who went to school over there. It's it's it you know it, it, it's the local you know they don't call them counties, but it's it, it's the local districts that really decide what what gets in the curriculum and um, the. Um, now it's happening, you know, where it wasn't happening when we were over there in the 80s, but it's happening now, just as it is in the United States. Yeah. So th th these issues reverberate.
they really reverberate. Yeah. Where? Oh, sorry, sorry to cut you off because we are getting to the end of our hour, and I don't want okay. to take up too much of your time. I did just want to give you the last 10, 15 minutes or so to plug your new series. You said at the beginning that you're currently working yes. with Apple on Masters of the Air. And I know me personally and our listeners would love to get any insight on what that's all going to be about and your experience with working with that particular show. Well, it's a very exciting thing and uh, for me. And you know, I hope for a lot of other people when it comes out. Um, we're, we're finished with the film. Um, we just have to layer in the final special effects. It was supposed to be released um, right about now. And, uh, and now it's getting pushed back into next year, further into next year, probably around October. And um, so it's, it's nine hours. It's about 10 hours of television, nine episodes. It follows up as it's part of a trilogy that began with Band of Brothers. Yeah. And continued with the Pacific. And um, I worked on the Pacific project. And that those were HBO projects, Band of Brothers and Pacific. Um, HBO was taken over by AT&T and Spielberg moved his intellectual property at that point um, to Apple. Because Apple was stronger than HBO into um, streaming, yeah. which is the force of the future. So we're doing a drama, not a documentary. And we have, I've seen the film several times. I've been working on it. I was one of the original script writers and one of the ones who conceived the film. There were basically four of us working on it from the beginning, Hanks and myself and a guy named Kurt Sadusky and a guy named John Orloff, who was a writer uh, who worked with us on the um, Band of Brothers. And um, it's, all the projects are slow. This is taking about the same, a little bit more, a little bit longer than Pacific, uh, than um, and, and Band of Brothers, just a little bit longer. And it's on the Eighth Air Force, which flew out of England in World War II from bases in England. And um, they were part of the main bombing force, along with the British, that ran what was called strategic bombing in World War II. And um, that's what my book, Masters of the Air, is on. And I try to take in, in Masters of the Air, the war in its fullness. Those in the planes, they were victims. Those on the ground, they were victims. Yeah. Uh, people in the cities, people on the bases, um, hospital life, race relations in Britain. Why weren't there, you know, black flyers in the bombers? We allowed them in fighter planes. Um, what was the effect of the bombing on Germany? Um, how did the crews survive? What first struck me, Blake, was the casualty rates were staggering. You had about a one in three chance of surviving initially. And um, well, that's odds worse than Russian roulette. And statistically, if you started to fly with the 8th Air Force when they first went over there in August to England, in, in August of, uh, of, of 42, um, your chances of, of making 25 missions which was the number at which you could transition out to another branch of the service or another part of the Air Force. Yeah. Uh, it was later raised to 35. If you, the chances of making that was zero. Yeah. Because wow. the, the, number, the number was 11. If you could get to 11, you, you were beating the odds. And, uh, and how did they get in those planes again the next day and fly those missions? And 
was it worth it? Um, was, did the bombing have the kind of effect we thought it did? And um, so these are intellectual questions and emotional questions and ethical questions, but it's set in the form of a very fast moving uh, character driven drama. Yeah. Where um, we have uh, one of the actors is a woman who worked for army intelligence. Another was a Polish woman who was working with the Polish government in exile in London. Uh, both these women fall in love with American flyers. We have some of the disputes between the Americans and the, and, and then the Royal Air Force, which is, of course, a conglomerate group made up of New Zealanders, Canadians, Australians, etc. Um, we try to do the whole thing, and we try to, we do a lot on prison life. Uh, enormous numbers of these guys, over thirty thousand, you know, became well, forty thousand became prisoners, and what was life like in the Stalags during the war? And at the end of the war, there was something terrible that happened that not many people know about. It's kind of that we all know about the Bataan Death March, but this was a, a different kind of death march. The Germans were not able to blunt the Soviet advance into Germany. And as they, they approached the camps, which were mostly in Poland, the prison camps, they took these allied prisoners, um, British mostly, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Uh, most of the prisoners were flyers because don't yeah. forget, we don't invade until late, you know? So mm -hmm. they're flyers for the most part. And they're going to be taken by the Germans to where they don't, they don't know where they'll live. Eventually they wound up, you know, in the, uh, you know, in, in the Western part of the country around Munich, but they marched across the Reich in the middle of the winter. They evacuated the Germans, evacuated the prisoners, you know, set the dogs loose, put the guards out and they made a, uh, a march through the worst European winter uh, of the century. And a lot of guys died on that march. And they went, they walked through the country they had just destroyed with their bombs. And they walked through the cities that they had turned into splinter and ashes. Yeah. And the Germans were there, still fighting. This isn't a post-war march. Yeah. And it's electrifying. It's amazing, you know, the kind of reactions they met, they were attacked. Uh, etc. So it's uh, I think it's a wonderful film, and the um, I particularly liked working with guys like Hanks. Spielberg was the one who got me signed on. He had read Masters of the Air, the book, and uh, uh, decided to make a film on it. Yeah, and that was good news today. I got that news. And, right, um, yeah. <laughs> I had one of my little granddaughters with me and I was just bringing her back from the library. And I said, can you hold on just a second? When I pull the car over, I have an important phone call. She said, well, I'm important. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, I know you're important. And I, I want to get an ice cream. I said, well, just hold on. You don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> and, um, Hanks made this observation to us that, you know, if this is not going to be the best film about World War II that you've ever seen, then you shouldn't be working on this because this is my goal. Yeah. And I want to try to make a cliche free flip film um, where uh, all the cliches in some of the worst movies about World War II are expunged. And uh, to him, he, he liked particularly the German film uh, Das Boot about the submarine campaign. 
and uh, that's a really powerful film. And basically, it's like Tom's newest movie. You know, one of the newest movies about a you know a guy who runs a, you know a, a ship on the convoy system in the Atlantic. Oh yeah, I've seen that movie. I was just about well, to say it, him it, talking about the U-boats. Is like he's had, he's got his own film where he's well, yeah. That. You know, I mean, the spirit is, is you can see the kind of thing we're working at. It's war is about everybody doing their job, mm. and nobody thinks they're a hero. And nobody's, you know, all the heroes are dead in their estimation. And if we are only going to win it, if everybody, all 10 men in the plane conduct their business and, and, and don't panic and try to just get to the target and get back and live. And um, uh, it, it skips a lot of the hoopla and everything, but there's a deadly earnestness about that and, it's, and a sense of drama and buildup that is terrific because these guys could have stopped flying at any point in time and they would have been reduced in rank, but they'd have lived. Yeah. They wouldn't have had to have gone through it again. They weren't going to be put in prisons or anything like that. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. And the air force psychologist um, told the military that basically we're doing a lot for these guys as much as we can to if a guy is suffering a very severe neurosis bordering on psychosis, we can give them drugs like sodium pentothal and amethol, which are sleep serums that can calm them down for a while and give them a lot of rest. But there's no cure for this except to say to the guys, you don't have to fly again. And uh, But we need them. Yeah. And, like we have chaplains in the film and, 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 and medical personnel and in the small base hospitals. And we try to describe the dilemmas that they're under. I mean, guys go to them for guidance, emotional guidance. And how do I get through this? And or is bombing immoral? Is it a sin? Um, all this sort of stuff. And then the chaplains and stuff say to themselves in their diaries, well, if I cure this guy, I'm going to send him back into the same situation that got him here in the first place. Yeah. Send him back into hell. Back into hell. That's, that's my cure. Some of these guys flew with the guys to try to understand what they were going through. Um, we have things about escape and evasion. What happens when a Jewish kid drops out of a plane over Germany and tries to escape? What are the chances? Um, when you were picked up, what happened to you? How did the interrogations go? Um, what was life like inside the camps um, where all these guys were thrown together? And then they were thrown together with African-American guys, too, because we start to have a, a group of American flyers called the Tuskegee Airmen. And several of these Tuskegee Airmen were shot down in battles over the Allied landings in the south of France later that summer, later the summer of uh, the D-Day, summer of 44. So there's, 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 there's race relations mixed into this thing, too. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a really powerful, it's a motion picture. Yeah. In, in segments. It's not a documentary. And but it focuses on one bomb group. That's what we did with the Pacific. We and, and Band of Brothers. We took one unit in each film to try to if we spread it out too broadly, it, it's it, it becomes chaotic. Yeah. It becomes a you know one of those um, you know, sandals and sword movies, you know, and with just legionnaires and quovatis and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The, this is very much focused on a group called the 100th Bomb Group. There was nothing really that special about the 100th. Their casualties were about the same. They called them the bloody 100th, but really their casualties were about the same as everybody else. They were terrible. Uh, they were probably a rowdier group 
than most of the guys and known for that. And, um, and they had some, some real heroes, just like all the other groups. So they were a representative group. Yeah. And we had to make a big decision whether there were B-17s. There's a big dispute about liberators versus a liberator. Was a, we had two big bombers, 400 bombers, liberators and Lancaster, liberators and B-17 flying fortresses. Um, why didn't we deal with the uh, liberators? Well, because we took a, an 8th Air Force outfit. And that was my doing. I, I focused a lot on the 100th in my book um, because I was drawn to some of the characters who were still living, who one guy in particular named Robert Rosie Rosenthal who was a Jewish guy. Um, he had just been sworn in as a lawyer. He graduated from Brooklyn, lived in a poor neighborhood around where the LA, now the LA Dodgers, where the Brooklyn Dodgers used to play baseball called Flatbush in Brooklyn. Went to law school, graduated with honors, got a big job on Wall Street, and then all of a sudden he's in the Army. He's in the Air Force. Volunteers the day after Pearl Harbor. And... Um, does three tours of duty, gets shot down three times. Um, on his way over, he uh, met an army nurse and fell in love with her and they got married. And uh, later on, um, he went over later on when the war was over, he went over for the Nuremberg trials because he's a trial lawyer. And uh, when he heard about Nuremberg, he was training to go in the Pacific. This is August of 45 and uh, decides to go as a um, investigator. And he and his wife investigated crimes committed against airmen on yeah. the ground. And um, they um, interviewed all the German kingpins that were at Nuremberg and things like that. So watched them go to their doom and felt the sense of closure they both did and came back. And he was an amazing guy because he was very quiet, soft-spoken, but extremely bright. And, uh, and as a pilot, he has a lot more responsibility than a fighter pilot or an average infantryman because he's got to take care of nine other guys. Yeah, and he's going to so, get him there. Yeah, you know, I mean, guys like Chuck Yeager were just nuts, you know, those fighter pilots. And, you know, I interviewed Yeager for my book, and he, you know, the guy admired those guys, but they were, they were different. What a bomber pilot, what they called for in a bomber pilot was steadiness. Uh, ability to hold yourself together in a crisis and hold a bunch of guys together emotionally, you know, and that's kind of what the film, a lot of the film is about that holding yourself together. Yeah. Um, when the pressure's like really on it. Yeah. Really yeah. Yeah. And, and, and getting away from the myth that air war is push button war. Um, we just press buttons. There's guys down in the trenches really fighting the real war. Um, my uncle who fought with the first division, they, they fought everywhere. And first on D-Day and all that other stuff. But he said he used to really admire the airmen and wouldn't want to be part of them and be up there 25,000 feet flying in an aluminum plane. You know, yeah. you could punch a hole through with a screwdriver and, and it's, a, it's a flying gasoline tank. And um, the, um, it's, you had to go to war in that machine. There's no cover. There's no foxholes. There's no medics. Different kind of air war than we think about sometimes and you could actually see the germans you they came in so close to the pilots that you could see their eyes yeah and and when he was shot down you saw what a gi hardly ever saw except in the last month of the war german civilians um german guards you're inside the reich yeah so you're so, experiencing it all yeah yeah really yeah 
Well, so, it sounds it, like it's going to be a, a, much, a must-watch series. That's for sure. I, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's terrific, yeah. Hanks wrote me a note the other day and said that he watched one of the scenes as one of our prisoners is Rosie is going is captured by the Russians actually at the end and saved uh, and they take him back and he visits a a prisoner of war camp and, and Hanks said I saw Rosie you know with the Red Army in that camp and he said my head bursts he said it was so good wow <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good it's a good film. <laughs> In your estimates, last question, is Tom Hanks a secret? Well, probably wouldn't even be secret, but is he a full-blind history buff? He's amazing. I'll tell you one story. He came to, I live in a little town called Easton, Pennsylvania, and um, he was coming in for a, a working visit to stay in at our house, you know. And um, uh, my wife was out buying new sheets. And everything. But anyway, for this, um, the... Um, I said, two suitcases? They were small. He said, well, one's just filled with books. And there are 10 or 15 of the newest books on German history about the war. And um, that's, that's the way he is. He's nuts about the history, and he really knows the history. Really yeah. knows the history. I mean, he, he's tough to work with. Yeah, because he's he wants, just like, oh, he wants actually. To get it right. He <laughs> wants to get it right. He does not. There's nothing that happens in this movie that didn't happen. Yeah, and that's the way he wants no. it to be. Well, I guess the yeah. whole crew wants it to be that way. That's the way it is. That's yeah. the way it is. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we might wrap it up there. Thank you so much generously. Well, on, thank you, Blake. Time. It was a great interview. I enjoyed it, and uh, I really admire your work. And um, check those websites. Yep, I, I definitely will. If get I can get yourself on one of those trips. <laughs> yep, if I could get myself a trip to Pearl Harbor or over to the States and get a, some fly to the World War II Museum, I I can really press to get you on that one of these trips. For right um, I don't know what the schedule is for the fall or for the summer. Check it out. See who's teaching it. And uh, you have my email address, you have my phone number, call or write anytime. Right here. Thank you so much, Don. Check it out. I will talk to you later. Yeah, see you uh, later.